Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and this is the second in our special two-part series with uh, investigative journalist and author Dan Alexander. And Dan is the journalist at Forbes who covers the president, and he's got a brand new, deeply researched book out called White House Inc., How Donald Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business. And whether you love President Trump or not, I believe this is a seminal podcast for every voting American. And here's why. In all likelihood, Dan Alexander knows more about the president's business than anyone outside of the Trump organization. That's the first thing. The second thing, I don't know if you've had a chance to watch either of the debates, but both of them have had the same loser. And that is the American people, in my opinion. The debates are bullshit. First of all, television is a terrible format for authentic conversation. How stupid is it that the candidates get two minutes for this, 30 seconds for that, and they get deeply into a powerful part of the conversation, and you hear the thing that I most detest on news television and talk television today, which is, sorry, we're going to have to leave that here and move on to the next issue. A podcast is the only forum for authentic, real, in-depth conversation where you can go deep. And that's why we've done this two-part series with Dan Alexander. Now, if you haven't heard episode 187, the uh, first episode, I uh, encourage you to go back and take a look at that one. And on this episode, whew, I'm not even going to tell you, you're just going to have to listen. It's legendary. We are brought to you by my friends at splunk.com slash D2E. Splunk.com slash D2E. Splunk is the leader in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out Splunk today. And my friends at Oracle NetSuite are the world's leading platform for your business, a complete business system. Visit NetSuite.com slash different today. That's NetSuite.com slash different today and learn how NetSuite can help you build a legendary business. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So, Dan, you really think that if the president of the United States had divested 100 percent of all the assets that you've been talking about, done this thing that the Bushes did and the Obamas did and so forth, from a business point of view, he'd actually be in a really good place? Oh, there's no question. I mean, it's it's a, it's a math equation, you know. So if you take the size of his fortune at the start of the presidency and you divest that, let's say, you know, I ran the numbers saying there's some debate about this capital gains tax thing, that's true for everyone except for the president because they are depend they have to comply with the conflicts of interest statute. For the president, there's some question of whether he gets that benefit. But most ethics people think that if he just went to Congress and said, Hey, you know, I want to follow the, you know, the spirit of this, can you give me this break too? That that would have been better from an ethics standpoint and that Congress for sure would have done it, particularly if it were controlled by Republicans as it was at the time. But okay, mm-hmm. let's let's say that, that that didn't happen. Let's say that he had to pay full capital gains tax, not and not just gains on like minor gains, gains on the entire fortune, okay? Both at the federal and at the New York state level, which are large, okay? And you take his entire fortune at the start of the presidency, you pay full capital gains tax on everything. And then you take the proceeds of that, what's left, and you invest that in the S&P 500. Okay. And you compare that 
to how his fortune has performed with all of the you know damage that's happened to the brand and all of that sort of stuff. And you put those two things on a line graph over time. Now it changes all the time because the market is performing differently, Trump's assets are performing differently and all that. The last time that I calculated this, which was about a month ago, Trump, had he done what all the ethics people suggested at the start and gotten rid of all of this stuff, he would be $800 million richer today. And he wouldn't have any of the conflicts. I wouldn't have written a book. We wouldn't be talking about any of this stuff. And he would have paid a shit ton in taxes. And he would have paid a shit ton in taxes. And he could. Talk and he would have been eight hundred million dollars richer. Right. And you could talk about how you know this was such a sacrifice that I made, and I gave all this money to the U.S. Treasury, and he would have been way richer today. So the decision, wow. the initial decision to hang on to his business, you know, I think we sort of knew at the start that this was kind of a a questionable political move. You know, that the, for his politics, this might not be the best thing. You know, he's going to have a lot of headaches. You know, there's going to be a lot of ethics issues, all that. But we didn't know from a business perspective whether this was going to be a good move or a bad move. Well, the results are in. This was a bad move from a political spec- perspective and it was a bad move from a business perspective. He would have been richer and cleaner if he just gotten out of everything. <laughs> wow. Wow. What a stunning. It's almost Shakespearean to hear you say this. I, I didn't realize this. Yeah. And it's, it, again, it's not, you know, it's just numbers, you know, it's not, yeah. there's no, there's no debate about it. You know, it's just a math equation. You run the numbers on what the appreciation of it would be. And, you know, he'd be way, way richer. Well, and his, his life would be easier. You, you write the Trump organization is one of the most unusual businesses in America. Mm-hmm. And by unusual, I infer at least part of what you mean is complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. It's hairy. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, it has, uh, you know, most, most businesses are either a real estate business or they're a golf club business or they're a hotel business or they're a rich guy who owns like some mansions. Trump's got all that stuff and they don't really interplay with each other. He's got commercial buildings too, you know, and this isn't a cohesive, you know, you look for like a publicly traded comparable to the Trump organization. Good luck. I mean, (laughs) what company? Has, you know, a collection of <laughs> office buildings, a collection of real estate assets, you know, a mansion in St. Martin, a penthouse in, in New York City. You know, it, it's, this is a very, very strange. So it's, business. it's really the strategy is shit I like. Oh, for sure. This is, you know, as some, as somebody with ADHD, I can understand this. One day we're doing golf courses. The next day we're doing condos. Next day we're doing TV shows. It's kind of interesting for an ADHD. I I don't know whether he has ADHD or not, but as somebody who uh, has been diagnosed with four or five different, they call us, they call them learning differences. Now I I put them all together, Dan, and call it dysphuglia. But anyways... I understand the the desire to do this. Yeah. My wife is always trying to stop me from doing yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. You know, I was, I mean, in that same, you know, Trump out Trump Tower office meeting where I was with Eric Trump, you know, I was asking him sort of, so what's like the strategy of the Trump organization? You know, it was a really interesting moment. It was right after, you know, Trump becomes president. I think they're in one of the most interesting business strategy moments in business history. Nobody had ever faced anything like this. He's got a multi-billion dollar business. He's an heir to this fortune. His dad's in the White House. He, you know, has this murky relationship with his father where apparently he's in control. And I say, all right, man, like this stuff is now under your purview. What's the plan? 
You know, what, what's, what's your strategy? And just to put a fine point on it, Dan, at that point, if you're Eric Trump, there is literally not a single person in the United States and maybe on planet Earth that you can't get in to see or talk to. Oh, for sure. You can, anyone, anyone. And so, you know, I say, so what's the strategy? You know, this is like a really exciting business question. And he said, well, you know, we buy nice things and we make them nicer. And we hang on to them for a really, really long time. And that's what we're going to keep doing. That was the extent hmm. of it. That was, that was the strategy. We're going to buy nice we buy things, nice things. we're going to make them nicer and hang on. Now, okay, you know, fair enough, but that's not a, you know, complex strategy. And to me, it's a reflection of Donald Trump's own strategy, the one that Eric Trump had grown up in the business watching, which is, we're going to buy stuff I like, we're going to put a bunch of money into it to make it really, really pretty, and we're going to try not to sell it. If we don't have to, which you can do, but you wouldn't necessarily want to buy a stock in a company whose manager is operating like that. It's it's not, it's not the best way to increase value. It's not the best way to get higher on the Forbes list. (laughs) Now, in fairness to Eric Trump and and the Trump Trump organization, uh, you could argue, or uh, let me say it this way. Mm -hmm. Let's compare it to a large investment holding company that many of us know, which is Berkshire Hathaway. Mm -hmm. And they have assets all over the place from, of course, a huge, huge stake in multiple insurance companies mm-hmm. to Coca-Cola to my personal favorite, Mrs. C's Candy, <laughs> which is an unbelievable business, legendary business that I adore. <laughs> anyway, a, a, a portfolio that if you looked at it through the right lens, you could argue, well, hey, uh, what, what, what the fuck's your strategy? You're, you got candies, you got insurance, you got all this stuff. And they do tend to be long-term holders. And so how is the tr- how is what Eric Trump said to you different from what Charlie Munger or uh, Warren Buffett say? Because Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett's investments are driven by math. And what, you know, what has the highest book value versus its trading value on its stock? You know, and where are the valuations low? where we can buy something that's going to churn out a tremendous amount of cash over decades. Eric Trump's strategy that he was describing was based on looks. You know, what do we think looks cool and what looks Mm. pretty? And, you know, it's not hard to see that when you walk into Trump's properties. You know, as we were talking about the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. earlier, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful hotel. And those chandeliers in the lobby are spectacular, you know, I mean, yeah. the, you know, crystal and gold and marble and, and not thin marble. I mean, this is thick, real materials. You know, these are, this real, is legit. legit. This is stuff. the gangster shit. <laughs> exactly. You know, this is legit stuff and that's all fine. But if you can't make that stuff, make you money, then what's the point? It's yeah. just, it, it just becomes a monument to yourself. And that's what hmm. they've done. They've, they've bought and built a lot of monuments to the Trump name. They're not necessarily buying, you know, Berkshire Hathaway isn't buying things that are monuments to Warren Buffett. He's buying things that he thinks are going to throw off a tremendous amount of EBITDA in 20 years. That's a very different 
uh, motivator behind the strategy, even if the mechanics look similar. Very different mindset. Okay. Now, when the New York Times brought out that extraordinary report at a level of detail, I mean, I spent a lot of time with that that report. I it's it's not an article. It's a really <laughs> in depth, powerful report with a level of detail that is surprising. There's a ton of questions I have about it, but but before we get to the specifics of it, the interesting thing I thought about if I'm Dan Alexander is my assessment of the work that you've done is you have as good, if not better handle on his net worth and business operations than maybe anybody outside the Trump organization. Would that be fair? Yeah. And then when the taxes came out, you are in a unique position to triangulate between the business, you know, the assets, his net worth, his liabilities, and what was now being exposed in the taxes. And so I've been dying, and I, I was so glad that you, it was very clear to me that as soon as those taxes came out in the New York Times, you went to work because it was only a matter of days where your article came out where you put it all together, which I thought was incredibly powerful to kind of triangulate. What are the taxes saying to us? What, what, what have we learned about the businesses and the value of those businesses, and how does it all kind of knit together? So I want to get to that stuff. But just before we get there, how the fuck did the New York Times get that information? And, and isn't it illegal for them to have it? <laughs> I wish I knew, because if I knew, then uh, I would have been right there trying to get it too. Uh, but an incredible feat of reporting to get it. And, uh, you know, we, we don't know how they got it. We don't know who gave it to them. Um, but, uh, you know, clearly they had, you know, sources with access to it who trusted them. And they, you know, have shown that they are determined to protect those sources and uh, my hat's off to them for for getting it and for uh you know for in fact protecting the sources now one thing i'm curious about they said that they had tax return data if yeah. i remember was the phrase they used and you know i'm a student of language dan and what Sometimes the unsaid speaks more loudly than the said. Mm -hmm. And so what it didn't say was the actual tax returns. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the gray lady is the gray lady. But of course, there are many people who who are on the right who who mistrust the gray lady mm -hmm. tremendously as having a, 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 a liberal agenda. And so how much credence, how much credibility do you put in uh, their reporting, given it appears, if I interpret it right, and you'll tell me, uh, that they don't have the actual tax returns? Well, the level of detail and uh, the you know breadth of what they have, and the fact that what they reported was consistent with everything that I know, you know about the Trump Organization, uh, and look. <laughs> People can mistrust journalists and all that. I I understand. I think that a lot of that is because there's a lot of blurring between what an analyst is and what a reporter is. But that's a mm -hmm. different a different topic. These guys are reporters. You don't you don't take a chance on that story. You don't you don't press publish on that and say, "Oh, I hope we got it right." <laughs> there's no way. Geez, there was a little more fact checking I thought we could have done in that bit in the middle. <laughs> there is zero chance that they don't have this thing, you know, rock solid. Now, th that language did stick out to me too, the tax return data versus the tax 
returns. And I don't quite know what to make of that. Uh, you know, whether that means that they were getting, uh, you know, all of the information from something that was, had, you know, been processed already or whether, you know, there's, these were detailed, uh, you know, copies that somebody had made of all of the information or what exactly it was. Uh, but, they've got the stuff. I, I got no question. They've got the stuff. <laughs> so you have no question in your mind. We can put it to rest as far as you're concerned. What's in, you can, you can take to the bank or to the Lord or whoever, <laughs> what's in that New York times piece. It's plus or minus accurate. Yes. Best you can tell. Take it to the bank. Okay. So now let's get into it. Of course, the shocking thing for most people was, uh, for two years in a row. The, I remember when my wife read it to me because she saw it come across her phone before I did. And she said, uh, the president paid $750 in tax. And I said, $750 million? <laughs> No, she said, 750 bucks for two years in a row. And of course, we like, I think everyone else in America and maybe the world went, what you talking about, Willis? How the <laughs> fuck? And look, I'm not a moron and I'm certainly not a tax accountant, maybe somewhere in between, but I understand tax laws carry forwards and, and, and those things make sense to me. Some people think they should go away. We can talk about that if you like, but at least I understand them and, 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 and have taken advantage of them myself for one reason or another. But even with massive tax loss carry forwards, it seems shocking to me. And so how do you triangulate the numbers that you've worked so many years on that you put in this wonderful book and what the New York Times is telling us, and in particular, that the president, for, our, for all practical purposes, pays no tax and, and for the better part of 15 years has not paid very much in tax. Yeah, it's stunning. And, um, you know, I want to be clear here, too. You know, the numbers that, you know, I'm working with are generally numbers that are describing operating income. You know, how much money is actually coming off of these businesses, not, uh, you know, what sort of fancy tricks are the accountants pulling, but what are, right. what are these things? You're looking at top line, bottom line, what's the real estate worth? How much are they getting per square foot in 555 California or wherever, Doral, whatever it is, right, right? Right. And, you know, those numbers, you know, the operating income, these aren't, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, numbers pulled from nowhere or, you know, pure estimates or anything like that. I mean, these are numbers that are filed in SEC documents uh, and from Trump's partners with the Securities and Exchange Commission. These are numbers that if they are wrong, <laughs> somebody has committed fraud. Okay, so these are no less credible numbers than what would appear on a tax return. The difference is what they're describing. The numbers that I'm looking at that throw off an enormous amount of profit are the business operations, the numbers that the Times has access to are the numbers that are appearing on Trump's personal and business tax returns after taking out interest, depreciation, uh, and, you know, accounting for a lot of fancy accounting tricks. The difference between those numbers is shocking. And, you know, a lot of rich people work hard to get their uh, business to look like it's not very profitable to the IRS. That's not surprising and it's not a problem if it's if it's legal yeah right? and there are a lot of ways that trump and their interpretations and people, of what's legal and 
right. there's stuff that's on the margin and right, exactly. sometimes sometimes shit happens and you know i i've been audited once there was one stock transaction that they had questions about and they came back and asked and and by the way, I didn't know any additional I'm an unbelievable accountant. But, you know, these things happen. Right. right. I, I, so I think most business people don't necessarily. How do I want to say this? You look at it and you go, you understand the tax rules enough as a layman business person with multiple assets and income streams that tax laws carry forwards and things along these lines and depreciation in real estate and several other, you know, there are things in the tax code that allow you to have big tax write-offs. And so I think we can understand that that's not shocking. I think to business people it might be shocking to some uh, non-business people in the right. American public, but, but not to us, but What's your interpretation of what the New York Times told us? Well, those sorts of things, you know, that's part of what explains the gap is the standard stuff. You know, taking depreciation on real estate assets, particularly real estate assets where you're dumping enormous amounts of money into them. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're putting $363 million into Doral, that is going to allow you to take an enormous amount of depreciation on that property. And if you're following the same model across your portfolio, that's a ton of depreciation that you can take. So that's one part of it. Another part of it is interest, which again is totally standard. You know, Trump has $1.1 billion of interest. Even with low interest rates, that's a lot of money that you can take, uh, you know, off of your operating profits when you're looking at your taxable income. So things like that are typical. What was most impressive about their reporting were the instances that, uh, where it didn't quite seem typical. So for instance, uh, you know, paying what appears to be paying Ivanka Trump a consulting fee while she at the same time is an employee of the Trump organization, which would... And I thought you reported, am I remembering this right, Dan, that she's either an officer or a director of some meaningful number of, of his entities. Is that correct? Oh, no question. It's, it's all on her financial disclosure report. So you're an employee, you're an officer, director, and she's a consultant? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's where you get into territory of, wait a second, this might not actually be allowed. Uh, it would be a good, good tax move. Um, you know, you can write off consulting fees for a business, which would allow Trump to, Donald Trump, to lower his personal taxes. That would be good for Donald Trump uh, and would help lower his tax bill, but raises some questions about uh, both ethics and, and the law uh, and whether, whether you can do that. Now, to be clear, if she was one or the other, that would be fine. If she was right. an employee getting a salary W-2, that's fine. Right. If she's a consultant, that's fine. No problem. I can hire my nephew as a consultant to do some social media thing, maybe do some thong videos of me on TikTok <laughs> that'll go viral or whatever. I, I, I can hire him. He can have his own LLC and I can pay him. Yep. But when you're doing both, the thought is um, essentially uh, you get to pay, you get to take the write-off of the consulting fees from a tax perspective, but this person's actually an employee and so it's kind of nefarious. And it may also be uh, a nefarious way of doing uh, wealth redistribution to your children, because of course, 
uh, when you when you're only allowed to, I think it's is it around fourteen or fifteen thousand dollars a year tax free you can give to somebody as a gift. After that, it's taxable. And then, of course, when you die, there's the death tax if you want to leave leave it to anybody other than your spouse. So there's there's so it, it appears that he's doing this to dodge tax laws. Is that your interpretation? Uh, yeah, it do, it does look that way. Um, and, you know, there's still, even in the Times report, there are, you know, major questions about how this all works. So it would be something that people would want to look into uh, more closely. And by people, I mean people with subpoena power <laughs> hmm. and uh, to figure out what's really going on there. But that's an instance where, you know, where there are serious questions about about the legality of, of how they made those operating profits look so small. You know, there are other things you know, like the fact that he's under audit right now and, you know, could potentially be facing a $100 million plus bill from the federal and state tax authorities that, you know, we had no clue about before this New York Times report. And that's the sort of information that uh, shows why seeing some of these tax returns is so important. You know, it allows you to see potential uh, weaknesses or places where they might be in trouble, uh, which is important for you know the president of the United States because then that allows us better to understand uh, you know potential points of leverage and that sort of thing. You know, so Trump, we estimate that Trump has 160 million dollars in cash in his fortune. Does that seem low or high given a net worth of 2.6 or 2.5 billion? Uh, probably probably a little bit low. Um, you know, I, a lot of billionaires, particularly people who have been that wealthy for that long, uh, would have a higher percentage of their net worth wrapped up in cash. You know, people who are new billionaires, you know, if you have a tech company or something like that, and, you know, haven't been kicking off big dividends and you just went public and you're a billionaire, you're likely to have less than that. But somebody who's been really, really rich, you know, for decades, uh, typically has a higher percentage of their fortune in cash than Trump does. Um, but so if you take that $160 million in cash and you say, okay, so Trump, you know, just a couple of weeks ago was talking about how he, uh, you know, might be interested in putting, you know, $100 million into his 2020 reelection campaign. Well, now that we know this information from the Times that the IRS is potentially holding, you know, an $100 million punch, there is no way in hell <laughs> that it would make sense for him to donate $100 million to his presidential campaign. He, can, he can't afford to donate that to his own no, campaign. No, not at all. It would, if you were his financial advisor, you probably wouldn't advise him to put $60 million into the campaign and go down to 100 No, no way. If you were his financial advisor, you'd advise him to put $0 into his campaign, which so far is what he's done. He's put zero dollars. Let me make sure. Yeah. He's put $0. He's worth $2.5 billion, $0 into his 2020 re-election campaign. Yeah, that's right. And actually, uh, most of the billionaires in the United States have donated some amount of money to the 2020 election, whether to Joe Biden or to Donald Trump. Uh, and Donald Trump did put money into his 2016 campaign. He put $66 million into it. Didn't he originally say he was going to self-finance the whole thing he in did. 2016? And that did not happen. He did self-finance a lot of it up until he gets the Republican nomination. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And then basically the cavalry comes and he gets, uh, you know, big money from the Republican Party and from uh, donors across the country. And so most of his money ends up not coming from him in the 2016 election. 
In 2020, he announces his re-election on the day that he takes office, which is an unusual move. That allows him to continue raising money and continue spending money um, you know, for nearly four years. Uh, whereas, you know, and, and in the American political system, actually, I give him a ton of credit for that, right? It, if my, my understanding is right, typically a sitting president would declare that two years or so in and right. begun, begin fundraising then, but it allowed him to start raising money throughout his entire presidency. And of course, he appears to love the rallies, but that's, that's beside the point. One could argue a savvy political move, particularly from a fundraising perspective. Right. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, you know, I think that before people were like, ah, oh, this looks kind of bad. And Trump was like, yeah, I don't really care. Uh, this makes financial sense. And he went ahead and did it. And it allowed him to, you know, get a huge war chest before Joe Biden was even a candidate. Now, Biden's caught up yeah. to that now. But, you know, but nonetheless, it gave him a huge, huge head start. But of all of those people who have poured money into his campaign, into Trump's campaign, uh, Donald Trump isn't one of them. He has put hmm. not a cent into his reelection campaign. It's interesting. This is a side note. I learned a long time ago, if you're going to get involved with a business, uh, one of the questions to ask is how much is the founder and founding team put into that business? Yeah, particularly if it's, it's a very fund. important question. If it's a if it's a private equity fund or something like that, or yeah. a reelection fund, <laughs> you want to know. Yeah, that's why. You know, as a side note, the legendary uh, venture funds in Silicon Valley, all the partners are in the funds right. and they have a disproportionate amount of their net worth in the funds. And as an investor in those funds, that's exactly what I fucking want to have. Yeah. <laughs> because if I'm in, you need to be in. Yeah, right. 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 <laughs> so that is interesting. Now, the New York Times, and if I'm misinterpreting this, uh, then help me, Dan. The picture I think they painted is a situation of. Declining revenue from endorsements and the like. The apprentice stuff is all over. So that sort of stuff is gone. Uh, to your point, some of the real estate has really uh, been damaged since he took over. COVID has hurt that business, the tourism business, uh, office real estate. I wouldn't want to own a lot of commercial real estate personally right now because in Silicon Valley, anyway, I've been asking CEOs and venture capitalists since COVID started, what percentage of office space do you think we have when we come back? And the answer I get, and this is not scientific, it's just asking folks, is somewhere between 25 and 50%. We'll see. But it seems pretty clear that most companies are going to require much less office space than they would have afterwards, or, or uh, prior to COVID, rather. So the picture the time starts to paint is declining uh, in the business, mm -hmm. to your point, how much he's lost, a massive amount of loans, if I remember the number, somewhere in the order of magnitude of $400 million that will come due uh, during the next term um, were he to win, and no way to replace this revenue because he can't go do an apprentice-like thing because he's the president. And in addition to all of that, to your point that I think you were just on, the IRS may want $100 million from him. Mm -hmm. And so they paint a pretty dark picture in even in in the context of a two and a half million dollar net worth. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate or how does the since the New York Times came out, how do you see his overall situation? Yeah, he's in trouble. There's no question about that. You know, both with the potential tax liability and the positioning of his businesses. These aren't great industries to be in right now. But 
his assets are still worth a lot of money. And uh, theoretically, you know, he could definitely still refinance those loans and extract additional cash that he could use to, for example, keep his businesses afloat if the pandemic extends longer and he needs the cash. And certainly to be able to pay back those loans. You know, he, he's got the assets to pay back the loans. And overall, his portfolio is not that over leveraged. It's not atypical for a real estate billionaire to have 50% leverage on their holdings or something like that. Hmm. Trump is lower than that. You know, it would be, that would be a lot of debt. So in that sense, he's been, he's been parsimonious. Yeah. He's been, you know, careful with his commercial real estate properties not to, um, get those super over leveraged. So, um, now his golf portfolio is not in as good a shape. And there are two properties that are over leveraged Trump National Doral and the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. So, you know, he might face problems there. He does have ways out here. He can refinance or he can sell stuff. The trick then is that then you're back to the conflicts problems. You know, you're going to the largest banks in the world as president of the United States while your administration is regulating those banks, while your administration is investigating many of those banks. And you're saying, hey, I would like several hundred million dollars. Are you willing to give it to me? And he's going to have to do that were he to win a second term. He would have to do that in the second term. So the the, yeah. the Times reporting is right in that there are major loans coming due, yeah. best to your knowledge. Yeah. And they will have to be renegotiated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That all of that part is right. And you know, or he'll have to sell stuff and then pay off the loans that way. You get to a different conflict problem there, which is that you know, if you are selling things, for example, you know, a commercial office building, let's say that you're trying to sell it for four hundred million dollars, you know, then you have the question of, okay, is this buyer buying the building because they really like this real estate, or is this buyer buying the building because they want? to make financial inroads with Donald Trump and perhaps rescue him because they like him or perhaps establish a connection there because they want him to like them or whatever. You know, there are a lot of reasons why somebody might want to be financially entangled with the president. And by holding on to the business, Trump has not only enabled people to do that, but has basically guaranteed that they will do that because of this loan situation that he's facing. So it's he's either going to refinance or he's going to sell stuff or he's going to do some combination. Either way, you have uh, you know conflict concerns that frankly would not be a problem if Trump weren't the president. This would just be regular business. People get in pinches and they've got to refinance and they've got to sell stuff. That happens. Um, no problem there. Nothing shady there. The, the ingredient that makes it suspicious is the position of the owner, which is that he's the president. And that yes. poses a problem. So it's not, you know, I think that's, that some people have sort of um, uh, overstated the danger that he is in financially. His empire is not about to collapse. Uh, he might have to declare bankruptcy on an asset or two. We'll see if he chooses to go that way. But even if he does do that on an asset or two, he's not going to have to declare bankruptcy on his entire portfolio. He's going to be just fine. So even though he's cash light, the fact that he's nowhere near as leveraged as he could be as compared to some other real estate barons 
Um, he's got wiggle room here. He yeah. can sell assets. He can renegotiate loans. Uh, and, and he might be in some trouble, to your point, a pinch, but he's not facing a collapse, best you can tell. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Now, the other big question, of course, that's been raised is, well, who does he owe this money to? And my understanding, and again, I'm no political expert, but my understanding is if you're if you're seeking either an appointment or elected office in the United States and you have some meaningful amount of debt that you're not going to be able to have that office because you other than, you know, normal stuff, your home and a car loan or, you know, whatever it is, a college loan or the kinds of things that are fairly normal for people. But beyond that, if you're overly leveraged, my understanding is you can't get a security clearance. In some cases, you can't get some jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, the big question everybody has, of course, is who does he owe this money to, Dan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's you know he's got a lot of different lenders. Uh, Deutsche Bank, of course, is the one that you hear about the most. So Deutsche Bank has an 170 million dollars against the Trump International Hotel in DC, 125 million dollars against uh, Trump National Doral in Florida, and 45 million dollars against Trump International Hotel and Tower in Chicago. What does that total out to? Oh, uh, let's see, 170 plus 195, 125 is 295 plus 45 is 340000000 million dollars. And those would be separate. Those would be separate loans, though, right? Yeah, that's right. Those are all separate yeah. loans. Now, Ladder Capital has done a lot of his initial loans and then sold them off uh, in a commercial mortgage-backed securities. As commercial mortgage-backed securities, so um, those loans include 100 million dollars at Trump Tower, 139 million dollars at 40 Wall Street. Uh, there's about six and a half million dollars at Trump International Hotel and Tower in New York City. And then there are some other loans, uh, for instance. So a lot of these loans, one thing that's important to understand about is who his lenders are, is that a lot of them are initially done by one bank or by a consortium of banks. And then those loans are sold off in little pieces to a lot of different investors. And once they're sold off... Which are essentially like loan mutual funds that get bucketed together. Yeah. And you as an investor can buy a Deutsche Bank bag full of loans um, as an asset class. And it's essentially a mutual fund of loans. Exactly. Exactly. And and so a lot of his debt is done that way. And we don't necessarily know who has bought off all these little pieces, um, but we do know who made the original loans. So, you know, 1290 Avenue, the Americas, there were four banks, one of which was the Bank of China, which is state owned, that originally lent him $950 million. Uh, to him and Vornado at that building. So his 30% of that is $285 million. That loan, though, has since been, been syndicated and sold off. So it's not like China is holding on to you know, 25% of that $285 million. At 555 California Street, there's $543 million of debt against that building. And then if you go across this portfolio, there are a bunch of smaller lenders. So like, there's a bank called Amboy Bank. There's one called Investor Savings Bank. There's one called Professional Bank. And these are, you know, banks that have lent him five to twenty-five million dollars on various mansions or golf courses or whatever. And if you add up all of the debt, uh, you know, you get to the one point one billion dollar figure. Now, some of that is personally guaranteed, some of that is not, but we do have a pretty good sense of who, you know, originally made those loans, who his creditors are. And I think, you know, when everyone's sort of guessing about this, you know, boogeyman out there that Mm-hmm. is holding a big bag of his loans. It's a good thing to wonder about. And because we don't necessarily know who's bought up all these little pieces, 
you know, it's possible that somebody could have accumulated a lot that way, but there's no evidence that there is, uh, you know, some foreign government that's holding a huge chunk of his debt. Yeah. I mean, one of the ones we heard a while back now is that, you know, the Russian oligarchs uh, flow a lot of cash through Deutsche Bank and there's some nefarious connection between the Russians helping Trump through Deutsche Bank. Right. That that right. was, you know, one of the I don't know if, if that was an Alex Jones one or not. Probably not crazy <laughs> enough for Alex. Yeah. But, you know, you you heard a lot about that when. There was talk of the steel dossier and the peeing and all that right. sort of sort of nonsense, right? So, is, I guess my question is: Is there anything that you have seen in your reporting or the reporting of others that sort of suggests um, nefarious activity around how he raises money? No, uh, there's been a lot of speculation about it, and those questions are legitimate. You know, I want to be clear about that. I mean, we we don't, you know, with Deutsche Bank, you know, Deutsche Bank has you know, done a lot of work in Russia. And there are legitimate questions about whether there might be somebody else on the other end of those loans. But we don't know that. And I think that you enter a dangerous game when you just start guessing at that, um, or even, you know, going beyond just asking the question. You know, there's a lot about Trump's business that is conflicting that we know these loans, you know, even just holding you know, $340 million from a German bank, Deutsche Bank, is itself, you know, something that, you know, causes legitimate concerns. Have we ever had a situation that is quite like this where, you know, uh, a sitting president is being audited and, of course, the IRS reports to him and has outstanding loans to foreign banks, banks that are in, in some cases backed or supported by foreign governments, in some cases governments that maybe don't like us as much as we'd like them to, et cetera, et cetera. There's certainly no precedent for anything like Trump's business in modern American history. You know, if you go back to the founding fathers, obviously some of those guys own plantations and that sort of thing, which as kind of an interesting side note, you know, that, you know, Trump likes to talk about how they kept their plantations and therefore he should be able to, you know, keep his businesses or whatever. You know, the fact that the founding fathers held plantations led to, you know, the most catastrophic conflict of interest in American history. I mean, they had a financial interest in uh, the question of, of U.S. slavery that had devastating consequences for millions of people across generations. And so pointing to their businesses as a model for why you should be able to hang on to a business does not make a lot of sense. But in modern times, you know, there's nobody's had anything close to this. The only thing that is somewhat comparable is if you look at so Nelson Rockefeller when he was vice president, um, you know, he of course inherited a uh, oil fortune, and he came into office with a significant fortune that today, in inflation-adjusted terms, would be worth about 1.1 billion dollars, and he had some real conflicts in that fortune. He had a stake in Exxon, a stake in AT&T, I believe it was, you know, stakes that were worth over $20 million, things that could cause potential issues. You know, Nelson Rockefeller at the time, he had previously served as governor of New York. And this was a big controversy, how wealthy he was and that he was bringing these assets in with him. And, you know, he basically took the approach of, first of all, he promised to put everything into a blind trust. and secondly. He said he didn't open up his uh, full financial information to the American public, 
but he did show all of his tax returns to U.S. Congress uh, to allow them to review everything. And ultimately, he basically, his position was, look, I've been in public life for a long time. And the question that you have to ask yourself when asking whether this is going to be a problem is, am I the kind of guy and have I shown over my life in public service that I am the sort of guy who is going to use the office for my own personal profit? And I think you can look at my record and say, no, I am not the kind of guy that you would have to worry about doing something like that. And if you compare that to Trump, you know, of course, Trump, you know, didn't do the blind trust and didn't show his tax returns to Congress and all of that. But this idea of Trump sort of, you know, relying on his reputation and asking people, you know, in both parties to say, look, am I the kind of guy who you would have to worry about, you know, self-dealing and exploiting the presidency for my own personal gain? I don't think there's any way that Trump would ask that question. And if he did ask that question, I don't think there's any way that he would get the sort of response that he would want. I think that people would say, yeah, you are that kind of guy. And that's, that's a, a fundamental difference between Trump and, and Nelson Rockefeller, who, you know, was also wealthy and in the White House. The thing I wonder most about that whole thread, Dan, is, and what percentage of the American people would care? Are there some American people who think, you know what, hey, monetize the shit out of the White House. You're a business guy. You're a celebrity. We don't give a fuck. We like this guy. He's a rabble rouser. Drain, drain the swamp. We, this, we knew this going in. And if you, you know, if you make a couple billion dollars being president, fucking A, you're just smart. And thanks for draining the swamp and fixing our taxes and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and, 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 and you know, thanks for the Supreme Court. And they don't, they don't mind that that norm is going away. Yeah. Well, and if that's the case, then, then that's a fine. You know, I mean, people can can vote based on that. But that, you know, that's not the picture that Trump has painted or that his team has painted. Um, And it's certainly not the reality. I see. Now, Dan, this has been a riveting conversation. Is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we wrap that you think is important to to underscore here? I could talk about this stuff for hours more, but I I think that, you know, we've hit on, on the key points. And, you know, one thing that'll be fun is uh, this experiment isn't over. You know, we're going to get to see for the first time what happens when you have a president who's not encumbered by a potential re-election if he wins or if he loses. What happens when you have a former president with a billion-dollar business uh, who then has to try to transform that business after leaving office? Uh, all of this stuff's unprecedented, which makes it, you know, from a business perspective uh just ripe for stories (laughs) it's absolutely fascinating and hopefully it will inform all of us uh going forward on uh what rules and ethics and and what we you know sort of demand of our leaders or not and um it's not inconceivable that we will have another billionaire 
as president at some point down the road here. It's almost predictable that sure. we will at some point. And so, uh, uh, you know, President Bill Gates or President Jeff Bezos or, you know, President Blakely, uh, it, it, we, we could conceivably in the next several cycles see another very rich business person. Andrew Yang had a good whack at it on the on the Democrat side. All right. A- anything else, Dan? No, I don't think so. Thank you so much for your interest and great questions. Well, uh, you're very, very welcome. And I deeply appreciate you investing this time with me. I, I was uh, knocked over by your book. It's an incredible piece of reporting. And and then when the tax returns came out and you tied it all together, uh, I just thought, man, uh, I would love to have this conversation with this guy. So <laughs> I can't thank you enough for making that come true, Dan. Sure thing. Thank you. All right. There it is. The second of our two-part series with Dan Alexander. Again, if you haven't heard episode one on episode 187, I'd encourage you to go back and do that. And we would be forever grateful if you shared these episodes with Dan with the people in your life who you know would love them. Now, in challenging times, it's critical to be on top of your business. Facts and information matter. Visibility and control matter. And that's why NetSuite matters. NetSuite is the number one cloud ERP system. It's the one unified business management suite in the cloud. As a matter of fact, it was built in the cloud and it encompasses everything you need to run your business from your core financials, order management, e-commerce, CRM, and much more. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to schedule your free product tour and receive your free guide, The Seven Strategies to Grow Your Profits. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the global leaders in data to everything. And Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And interestingly enough, organizations around the world rely on Splunk for cybersecurity to modernize and strengthen their defenses. Splunk is used by some of the largest and most sophisticated organizations in the world. They help you monitor, detect, respond, and resolve digital security threats. Visit splunk.com slash D2E today and learn how to turn data into doing. All right, we would like to thank Dan Alexander himself. Thank you so much for a riveting, spectacular conversation. I really appreciate, Dan, your willingness to go deep. I know many thousands of others will as well. His new book is out. It's called White House, Inc. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. I also want to uh, shout out to Amanda Lang for helping to make these two special episodes with Dan happen. Uh, my friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit that help people dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. We do this podcast on a powerful podcasting platform called Squadcast.fm. If you want to do legendary podcasts over the internet, Squadcast.fm. And uh, Rapid Media are my friends in Australia who do legendary marketing. Check out RapidMedia.com.au. And um, my friends at Category Design Advisors are there to help you design and dominate your category. Visit CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. And if you love marketing, check out the number one charting marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. My friends at Atranet will help you build a legendary B2B website uh, and conquer your category. Visit atre.net. And if you're in a position to help, now's the time to dig deep. Our economy needs you. Our nonprofits need you. And if there's anything you can do to make a difference, that would be wonderful. All right. This podcast is um, only for people who value real different conversations and is the sole property of the Lodcast. Lodcast? Yeah, the Lodcast. And most importantly, we'd love it if you shared the shit out of it. We are produced by a legend in the podcast world. 
Jason DeFilippo. He, uh, check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my favorites. Jamie J and Sarah Knox do legendary technical execution here in buildlockhead.com. Our show notes are by Diane Gervasio. Remember to vote. Spread books, not uh, viruses. I also want to say a huge thank you to the real journalists out there doing real fact-based reporting. Bless you. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. Uh, and hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay healthy, stay safe, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.